Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So you've gotten your COVID vaccine. Does that mean your employer wants you back in the office? And if you haven't gotten the vaccine, can your boss require that you get the shots? Coming up, we hear from employment law expert Daniel Schwartz, and we'll take your questions too. First, here in Connecticut, more than four out of 10 residents are fully vaccinated against COVID. Nearly six out of 10 have gotten at least one dose, but that doesn't mean Connecticut will be reaching herd immunity anytime soon. Today, where we live, we welcome back Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's the state's acting public health commissioner. Yesterday, the FDA approved the Pfizer vaccine for children over the age of 12. What questions do you have about getting your child eligible? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Dr. Deidre Gifford, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Very happy to be here. As I mentioned, children over the age of 12, the FDA gave uh, approval for Pfizer, I believe, uh, late Monday. So what's the plan here in Connecticut? How soon would Connecticut providers be giving this vaccine to children 12 to 15 years old? Right. So that was good news that we got uh, from the FDA uh, yesterday. And on Thursday, we can expect that our providers will begin offering vaccine to the um, 12 to 15-year-olds. That's pending a conversation to happen at the CDC tomorrow. Um, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that's an advisory body to the CDC. You, re- you might remember they have met each time the FDA has taken an action on a vaccine. They meet and provide the formal recommendations. Uh, so we anticipate that tomorrow ACIP will recommend the vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds and that our providers will begin offering the shot on Thursday. When we talk about providers in Connecticut, who are we talking about? Hospital systems, the drive-through vaccine clinics that I know the Community Health Center has set up. Uh, we know there's just so many different providers in our state that are offering the vaccine. And so for parents that have children in this age group, who should they contact? Well, any one of those providers that you mentioned, Lucy, will be able to offer the vaccine to 12 to 15-year-olds. Um, you didn't mention uh, another group, which is local pharmacies and chain pharmacies, they will also be able to offer the vaccine to the younger age group. So um, parents have a lot of choices. They will need to provide consent um, for for, uh, kids under 18. So that's an important thing to remember. But um, there should be widely available options and appointments for uh, parents and children to get the vaccine. For adults, we've been going through at least VAMS and then, you know, checking out CVS and Walgreens uh, to try to get our vaccine. Is that something that children, parents of children will need to do as well? They can do that if they'd like to schedule an appointment, but they can also walk up. Most of our 
uh, vaccine provider sites are now offering walk-up appointments as well as scheduled appointments. So both of those things are an option. Now, what about schools? We know that um, there have there has uh, there have been uh, efforts to have vaccine clinics or appointments available, like within school districts or within local health districts. And so, how will that roll out, Commissioner? Yeah, but both of both of those are also options. You can tell Lucy that we are trying to really flood the zone with all kinds of options for people to get vaccinated. So um, we anticipate that local health departments will be working with school districts, both to provide information, but also um, to set up clinics to make sure that the that the kids um, have a local option as well. Um, so, you know, we know that with this uh, younger age group, we're hearing that um, some parents have questions. They want to understand the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. Um, we obviously encourage them to, first of all, go to the FDA and CDC websites where there is lots of information for, for parents. Um, a pediatricians, my guess is that they will be uh, also posting on their websites information for parents about uh, the safety and effectiveness of the vaccine. So um, uh, parents should feel free to reach out, get their questions answered, um, but then they should have lots and lots of options for where to take their kids. Uh, when we hear that there are reports of Americans who have gotten their maybe their first shot of the COVID vaccine, but have not followed through and gotten their second shot, does that concern you? Uh, if uh, because we know that school is going to be ending soon, uh, hopefully parents are thinking about ways to have uh, safe vacations to get away. Mm -hmm. But in terms of making sure that their children are getting those two shots to keep on this the vaccine schedule. Yep. Well, I can tell you that um, here in Connecticut, we've done a, a, a better job than the national numbers would indicate in terms of people stepping up and getting their second shot. So I want to I want to be sure and acknowledge not only just uh, the residents of Connecticut and what a terrific job people have done in getting uh, vaccinated, but also the fact that virtually everyone, 97 percent approximately of people in Connecticut, um, have been coming back within the time window to get their second dose. So that's really a, a terrific um, rate of coverage. Um, governor Lamont has been working with other governors across the country when it comes to college students and encouraging other governors to allow um, and facilitate college students who get a first dose on campus and then go home to another state, facilitate getting, making sure that they can get their second dose um, in their home state. So we've been working with our providers to make sure that that's available. And I want to, um, I want to also remind listeners that if you did miss the time window to get your second shot, if for some reason you missed your, your second dose, go ahead and, and, uh, go back and, and get the second dose at whatever time period, uh, you, you're able. It's, it's never too late to go back for that second dose that will still help boost your immunity. You're hearing Connecticut's chief public health official here on where we live, Commissioner Deidre Gifford, acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. If you have a question for her, here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. When we talk about the vaccination rate, certainly Connecticut among the leading states, but we know that in our cities, uh, vaccine rates for
but still uh, not where they should be. Uh, Bridgeport, 35% of residents vaccinated. Hartford, 33%. And so what's being done to reach them and why is there still this lag when compared to uh, the suburbs? Well, uh, we are uh, really focused on the the issue of making sure that everybody in Connecticut has uh, access to vaccine and that they get their their questions answered and they get the information that they need. So I'll I'll describe a few of the things that we've been doing with with Governor Lamont's leadership. Um, First of all, you know that we've uh, we we were the first state in the country, pardon me, to get one of the FEMA mobile units um, here in Connecticut. And uh, that FEMA unit started out in Bridgeport and continues to travel around the state, mostly, almost exclusively to our cities. Um, the, the unit was in uh, Waterbury last Friday night and uh, all day Saturday um, is moving on, I believe, to Meriden today. Um, so uh, the FEMA mobile unit is uh, focusing on easy walk-up, um, convenient access in our cities. We've also got a second FEMA mobile unit coming in, in Connecticut, and that's helping us with second doses uh, for people who got the, the first dose at a FEMA, FEMA mobile unit. Um, we also have our Department of Public Health yellow vans that are out in our cities providing easy, convenient no appointment necessary uh, access to vaccination in our cities. We've been working with our local health departments, and now we're starting to ramp up our partnerships with other types of community organizations to make sure that people know when those vans are going to be in their neighborhood and that they can walk up and get a shot. We also, Lucy, um, recently released what we call our uh, Vaccine Equity Partnership Grants. So using federal funding, our local health departments apply to the Department of Public Health. Uh, We distribute are in the process of distributing over $13 million to local public health departments to help them uh, work with community organizations to reach the people that live in their cities and towns, both to uh, to talk to them and answer their questions um, and ease any concerns they have about vaccine, but also to do outreach, make sure that people know when the the vans will be in their neighborhood, when the FEMA unit will be in their neighborhood, all the other options they have at pharmacies, grocery stores, uh, hospital clinics, community health centers. Um, So really doing that outreach and education. So we're uh, we're working really hard to make sure that the residents of our cities have access to vaccine and they have all the information they need to make their, uh, their decisions. So it sounds like there's a lot of access points at this point in the uh, vaccination strategy here in our state. Do you see this as an issue of hesitancy because there's misinformation out there about this vaccine, Commissioner? Well, there are some uh, false rumors going around about the vaccine. And whenever we have an opportunity, we try to address those. Um, there's, There's been a rumor that's impacted, I think, um, a, a number of young women in particular um, about the vaccine causing infertility. And I just want to make sure that, that your listeners know that there's no evidence um, whatsoever that this uh, vaccine causes infertility or uh, other reproductive health problems. Um, and then there are, there's the issue of trust. 
Um, there's the issue of trust in um, the process of developing the vaccine. There's the issue of trust between certain communities and government agencies because of um, historical um, discriminatory practices. And so, you know, our job at the Department of Public Health is to be open, honest, transparent, to work with community organizations uh, to, to work to gain their trust and make sure that they understand we're offering this vaccine because it's um, the best way we have to prevent uh, COVID from ever coming back. And it's the best way we have to help those communities that have been so adversely impacted by COVID. So um, there, are, there are multiple issues besides just hesitancy. Again, if you have a question for Commissioner Gifford, she leads the Department of Public Health in our state, the number 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Can we talk about incentives? Because a few weeks ago, Governor Lamont said that you know the, the state would love to buy a drink for people who get their vaccination, but we know other states are actually uh, looking at providing cash incentives to get people vaccinated to get us as close as we can to this threshold of herd immunity. So what's your take on this? Is this the next step that Connecticut needs to take, um, a financial incentive to get people to get vaccinated? Well, there is some uh, there is some evidence that these kind of modest incentives can help people or sort of on the edge. You know, maybe they're thinking about it. They're just not sure. They might be holding back for whatever reason. There is some evidence that incentives um, like that can can help. So we are certainly exploring that. You mentioned the uh, the drinks on us campaign by our restaurants, where they're offering um, a drink to people who present their vaccine card. Um, we have, <clears throat> excuse me, sports organizations like the Yard Goats uh, who are uh, offering some incentives. Um, and uh, some of our partners uh, that are providing vaccine have been offering uh, uh, food or other just kinds of entertainment at the time of the of the vaccine. So we're working with our partners at CDC. There are some rules around how you can use federal dollars for incentives. So we need to stay within those guidelines. So we're working with our partners at CDC and our vaccine providers. And I think you'll begin to see a little bit more of that in Connecticut as well. What do you think is the biggest challenge right now when we look at uh, not only the state's vaccination plan, but uh, communicating with residents? I know the governor has said that young adults and teens uh, think they're invincible. Uh, you're not seeing high rates of the vaccination uh, for those age groups that are eligible. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about that. And, and are you seeing community spread among these groups? Well, um, our, our 16 to 18-year-olds are actually coming out in pretty strong numbers uh, to get vaccinated. Um, 18 to 34-year-olds are the lowest group right now in terms of the, the number. We're not quite at, at 50% there. Um, so it is that younger age group. But the teenagers seem to be very, very anxious to get vaccinated. Uh, I was out on a walk in my neighborhood last night, and a, a, a parent stopped me and asked uh, what was the earliest possible moment that her 14-year-old could get her vaccine. So I think there's a lot of teenagers who've been, uh, you know, really their 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 lives have been so uh, impacted by the quarantine and all the restrictions. They're really anxious to get vaccinated. So I think the challenge, Lucy, to answer your question is that we're, we're now down to uh, a point where all the people like, uh, like myself who were very anxious to get vaccinated have done so. 
Um, and so now it's it's really more of a person to person, one by one, um, kind of a of a campaign really to make sure that people have both access to appointments and access to information, and uh, and that they um, understand the benefits of of getting vaccinated. So it's going to be a more intensive process from now on uh, to make sure that we're communicating. Uh, with the people who haven't gotten vaccinated yet. Tim's calling in from Preston. Tim, what's your question? Yeah, I have had a, a long-standing um, problem with uh, the way that vaccine has been described as uh, making myself and others uh, safer. I know I have uh, the Moderna vaccine. I've been vaccinated twice, got both shots. And I've been told that uh, it will increase my ability to fight the virus and protect me. But I also understand that I can get the virus and I also understand that I can transmit it. So health officials are saying that if you get the vaccine, you'll be protecting yourself and others. How will that protect others if I'm still have the potential to infect others, even though I've been vaccinated? Commissioner? Uh, yeah, this is a great question. Um, I really appreciate you asking because uh, it, it, it's important to clarify. So um, last week, actually, uh, the department released information about the number of cases of COVID that we've seen in people who are fully vaccinated. Um, and, and what we have found is that only 250 people um, out of over 1.4 million um, have been documented to have a COVID infection after being fully vaccinated. So... Um, so what that means is, although the statement you made is true, um, as a fully vaccinated person, it's possible you could um, still carry the virus. What we're learning is that is very, very rare. So, in fact, not only does it protect you from getting severe illness um, or, or dying from COVID, and it's extremely effective in doing that, we're also learning now um, as this, this program rolls out, that it also protects you from um, harboring the virus and transmitting it to others. It also helps with that concept that Lucy referred to earlier called herd immunity, which is the more of us who are uh, generally immune to COVID, the less chance that a virus, that, that someone who is infected uh, can spread it within the community. So it, it does protect you and grateful that you got um, vaccinated and it does help protect your community as well. Before we head to break, Commissioner Gifford, and again, you can ask her a question at 888-720-9677. Of the breakthrough cases, the 250 that uh, still got COVID after being vaccinated again, uh, very, very rare, as you mentioned. Uh, can, what can you tell us about the people who contracted this despite being fully vaccinated? Um, and what message do you have for, for residents who may be worried about this, even though it is very rare to a, a fraction of 1% that have gotten this? Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, uh, uh, almost half of the people that were detected um, had no symptoms whatsoever. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Um, it, it's extremely rare for someone to be fully vaccinated and actually get symptoms of COVID. Um, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that all vaccines um, have a, a small number of breakthrough cases, but 
these particular vaccines uh, compared to, for example, our annual flu shot or the other vaccines we're used to taking, these vaccines are extremely effective. Um, so what I would say to people who are concerned is um, the chance of, of you getting COVID after being fully vaccinated is very, very, very small. If you do get COVID, chances are that you won't have uh, symptoms and uh, chances of you getting sick or being hospitalized are even smaller. So it's just a, it's a great bargain in terms of uh, the risk versus, versus benefits of the vaccine. Again, you're hearing Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's the acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. You can ask her a question at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, what can employers require from workers now that the COVID vaccine is widely available? We'll talk to employment law expert Daniel Schwartz and take your questions too. That's later. With me now on Zoom, Dr. Deidre Gifford, Acting Commissioner for the Connecticut Department of Public Health. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joe's calling in from Colchester. Go, Joe, go ahead with your question. Um, hi there. Actually, I'm on my way to the convention center right now to get my second uh, Moderna shot, so I'm happy about that. Um, my question is is actually a couple quick questions. One is regarding the children and the new guidelines for 12-year-olds. That seems excessively low to me in terms of the kids that are 12 years old are not in danger of COVID, not really in danger of spreading it. Um, and the statistics bear that out. And the second part of my question is, why is there not enough, not more focus on keeping people healthy to help their immune systems? We know that comorbidities and also obesity are big problems when it comes to this disease, and it seems like that is not a focal point. And in my opinion, it should be, especially when we're talking about children. Thank you, Joe, and drive safely. Uh, Commissioner Gifford, you want to start with the first one. Uh, why should 12 to 15-year-olds be vaccinated if they're low risk? Yeah, uh, great questions, Joe, and um, thank you for getting your second dose. I'm, I'm glad that you're on your way to, to uh, full immunity. Um, so with the 12 to 15-year-olds, it is true, um, as we all know, that children um, have been at lower risk from the most severe consequences of COVID-19, but they are not at zero risk. Um, and I was I was reading an article uh, this morning, actually, with interviewed a, a few pediatricians at children's hospitals in some of the states that are still seeing higher levels of COVID. And and they do have uh, teenagers in the hospital. They do have teenagers in intensive care units, and so there are. Uh, granted rare, but there are cases of um, some kids getting sick. And so the benefits of the vaccine for this age group are, A, it protects them um, from the most severe consequences of COVID. Um, B, it's a very safe vaccine. We know that now because millions of us have been vaccinated with 
um, very minimal side effects. And the other important thing is um, that 12 to 15-year-olds are around adults that are older um, who are at higher risk. They may be visiting uh, with grandparents or they may be visiting with people who are unvaccinated and still at higher risk. <clears throat> so that concept, again, uh, Lucy, that you talked about of herd immunity, really uh, the kids are part of the herd, you know, to put it, to put it bluntly. And so <clears throat> in order for us to really put the pandemic behind us, uh, we, w- we will need to have the whole community uh, be immune to the, to the virus. And so they're an important part of that strategy. Kids want to get vaccinated as well because uh, the guidelines don't require them to quarantine if they have an exposure once they're fully vaccinated. Um, the, the testing requirements go away for routine testing. So there are a lot of good social reasons uh, for the kids to, to want to be vaccinated as well. And, and with respect to your, your other question, which is really excellent about, you know, what about the underlying things, uh, health conditions uh, that made uh, people more susceptible to the worst outcomes from COVID? Um, this pandemic has shown a light on so many of our challenges in public health. And you talked about obesity and chronic disease. Um, it's one of the reasons why um, the, the Governor Lamont's uh, proposal for the American Rescue Plan Act the use of those funds is to really start to focus on some of those root causes. Um, uh, there's a very big investment proposed in young children, um, in particular, making sure that young children have a healthy start in life, um, ha- having home visitors go out to, to visit with families with young children, having community health workers working with families with young children, because we know that a lot of the roots of health disparities and chronic disease start in early childhood. Um, so we do need to double down on um, the public health interventions that have caused these disparities in uh, in chronic disease. And, uh, you know, I think there's a uh, will be hopefully a renewed commitment, not only in Connecticut, but around the country to do that. Before I take another call, uh, someone wanted to know when we talked about the breakthrough cases, again, the 250 people who've contracted COVID despite being vaccinated in our state, uh, the person wanted to know, are they able to spread the virus, Commissioner? Um, you know, it's likely that uh, they have a lower, what we call viral load. That means they have fewer of the actual viral um, particles that they would be, be spreading. So chances are that um, they could, but uh, that the probability of them spreading it is much lower uh, than somebody who is unvaccinated or very ill with COVID. You're hearing again, Acting Public Health Commissioner for the State of Connecticut, Dr. Deidre Gifford. Uh, Ellen, what's your question from Middletown? Um, yeah, good morning, Lucy. My question for the commissioner is uh, with regard to industry-specific hesitancy to getting the virus, um, I can forward to you. It's uh, an article in Construction Dive magazine that I just read this weekend showing that the construction and extraction industries have like a 46% rate of hesitancy. That's people who say they won't get the vaccine, even if it's available because they're concerned about side effects or they, you know, they're subscribing to misinformation that's out there. So my question is what industry specific efforts is the state making to get into the construction industry, to get into manufacturing where you have a higher level of hesitancy to help people understand that it's safe and effective? Yep. 
Uh, great question. So we've we've actually started working with employer groups to set up um, uh, vaccine clinics specifically on the work site. Um, many of uh, our uh, largest employers have already done that, but um, we want to make sure that we make it easier for people to get vaccine on the job if they want to do so. Um, we've also heard um, that in certain industries there is a higher rate of evidence, uh, excuse me, hesitancy. But what seems to work in those circumstances, um, and we saw this in healthcare very early on, is when uh, when a colleague or coworker gets vaccinated and then talks to their coworkers about it, um, that seems to be one of the most effective ways for us to kind of get over uh, some of those concerns. And so uh, we've been doing uh, some outreach uh, to help train uh, what we call trusted messengers uh, to spread the word within um, certain communities about the, the safety of the vaccine. So this is, as I mentioned earlier, this next phase of our vaccine program is going to be one person at a time, one arm at a time, lots of person-to-person conversation and sharing of experience uh, to get over the, the concerns that still remain. Again, you're hearing Dr. Deidre Gifford. She's acting commissioner of the State Department of Public Health. We focus so much on the COVID vaccine and what our rates are here in our state. But I wanted to shift and talk about uh, something happening in the news. Uh, About 3,400 nursing home workers slated to strike this Friday at 33 nursing homes. Another 600 at six nursing homes could strike later this month. Uh, There was a report released by the Yale Law School's Worker and Immigrants Rights Clinic on Monday talking about the insufficient safety protections and low pay of nursing home workers in Connecticut. That report was based on findings from your agency, the Department of Public Health, their records. Uh, The report says the state has not adequately protected this workforce and also the worker testimony demonstrates staffing, compensation, safety and transparency problems predate the pandemic. Uh, Commissioner Gifford, can you comment on this report and what your agency has done to protect these workers? Yes. Um, And first of all, I want to start by uh, saying something which I always try to do when I talk about um, nursing homes and the pandemic, which is to offer um, the thanks of uh, the department and and the whole state to all of the workers in nursing homes. It's been um, to say it's been a difficult year for them and the families and residents of nursing homes is an understatement. Uh, It's been a very, very challenging year, and we are very grateful to the people who uh, were on the job from day one under very difficult circumstances. Um, Very quickly, I I would say with respect to uh, the report and and, um, some of their uh, some of the findings. Um, the governor did commission a report by an independent um, third party, very well respected national research organization called Mathematica. I encourage people to look at that report. We commissioned it last summer, just after the first wave, because we wanted to make sure that we learned the lessons of the first wave of the pandemic. Um, that was published in September. Um, and, uh, and, and most of the recommendations in it are uh, well underway or completed. In terms of what we've done to protect workers, um, first of all, the governor has provided um, tens of millions of dollars in financial support to the industry. We distributed um, millions of uh, pieces of personal protective equipment to the industry over the course of the pandemic. 
We also, uh, uh, one of the findings of the report was um, that, that they thought there were insufficient inspections. We conducted uh, over 3,000 inspections in nursing homes over the course of the last year, over 3,000. Now, we only have 200 nursing homes in the state, so that means each home was visited over 10 times by um, some very dedicated inspectors at the Department of Public Health. So um, we agree that it's been a very difficult and challenging year, um, and the department had, and the state, uh, with the governor's leadership, have been working very hard to support the workers and the industry in the interest of the safety and health of the residents of our nursing homes. You mentioned the inspections, uh, but according to our reporter here, Nicole Leonard from Connecticut Public, that report uh, mentioned nursing homes that violated COVID-19 safety protocols were just fined minimal amounts. The authors of this report from Yale say 10 facilities with the highest number of COVID-19 resident deaths were not fined at all. Should DPH have fined more of these nursing homes to compel these operators to have the right protections for not only the, the residents there, but for the staff there as well? Yeah, so, you know, fines are, are issued in collaboration with our federal partners, and uh, we worked with them uh, side by side uh, throughout the pandemic. I will say that um, the department was, was quite um, aggressive in our approach with nursing homes. For example, um, you might recall the Three Rivers Nursing Home, which had um, uh, an outbreak, and uh, we found that the... Um, nursing home was not sufficiently implementing infection control protocols, we immediately put in a temporary manager into that facility, which is a very unusual step. Um, That temporary manager found that she did not think that the nursing home could be turned around sufficiently to protect the residents, and we ordered closure of the facility. It's a very unusual action that hadn't been taken uh, in decades. So the department really has been working very hard and very closely um, to oversee this industry. Well, Dr. Deidre Gifford, again, Acting Public Health Commissioner, we thank you for coming on. You've mentioned Governor Lamont several times. We've been trying to get him back on the show. Please put a good word in for us. Uh, We haven't heard back. (laughs) Thank you for your time, Dr. Gifford. Thank you for having me on. Bye. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to shift uh, after the break and talk about what employers can require related to the COVID vaccine. We'll take your questions too. employment law expert Daniel Schwartz will be with us. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So you've gotten your COVID vaccine. Does that mean your employer wants you back in the office? And if you haven't gotten the vaccine, can your boss require that you get the shots? Joining us now to answer those questions and others, Daniel Schwartz. He's a partner at Shipman and Goodwin LLP. He practices employment law for both large and small companies. And he's the author of the Connecticut Employment Law blog. Dan, welcome back to the show. 
Nice to be with you again, Lucy. And the number for listeners, 888-720-9677, if you have a question for Dan. Uh, we know that Community Renewal Team made news last month. This was a Hartford area nonprofit. It announced it would mandate vaccinations for their staff. So I want to hear what you're hearing from employers. Is your phone uh, uh, off the hook in terms of what they can ask their workers before they come back? Yeah, uh, it, it's a great question. And yes, the phone has been ringing. A lot of employers, uh, I think, were thinking, oh, we're not going to have to worry about vaccinations until sometime this summer. And then all of a sudden this spring, things sped up. Uh, and now sort of the reality is, is dawning on people. We, we need to confront this issue. So, I mean, the, the simplest explanation I've told people is employers can mandate as a condition of employment vaccinations um, with some exceptions, right? You, if someone has a disability or a religious belief, those still need to be accommodated just like we would any other uh, employment situation. But absent that, employers do have broad discretion on vaccinations, at least here in Connecticut. Um, now, no one's going to put a shot in someone's arm that doesn't want it. So when we talk about mandating vaccinations, we're just talking about it as a condition of employment. Um, but uh, still, I, I think more employers are starting to consider this, uh, particularly as a means for getting everyone back to the office. That's interesting. So they can mandate it, but the idea that they will is still something that a lot of employers aren't comfortable with. I asked uh, Commissioner Gifford, uh, as a state, are there other incentives to get the vaccine hesitant uh, to be on board? Is that something that employers are thinking about or in terms of, of providing vaccine clinics, making it more accessible to their workers? Uh, certainly. And, and and already employers, even the ones that haven't decided yet to mandate, are really strongly encouraging employees to get the vaccine. So how might they do that? Well, you can do it through education programs. You can do it through, you know, these Zoom conference calls, bring in a local doctor, a, a, a local expert to, to answer employees' questions, uh, giving employees time off to not only get the vaccines, but deal with the the side effects that might uh, come with the vaccinations. Um, we've heard of others giving, you know, small cash incentives and everything um, on, under the sun, uh, gift cards, uh, otherwise. Um, you know, at, at some point it becomes a, a law of diminishing returns uh, on that. But I think anything employers can do to uh, get employees to voluntarily uh, do the vaccinations will help reduce the the size of the issue employers are going to need to address um, sort of at the end of the day. Um, it, it, as I've said to a lot of uh, clients, it's, good, it's a big difference when you know your staff is 90 to 95 percent vaccinated versus, you know, 50 to 60 percent vaccinated. What types of employers are you hearing from in terms of, of plans uh, moving forward? We heard from a woman earlier who works in the construction sector and uh, the amount of, of uh, construction workers uh, that are getting vaccinated is not very high. And so I'm just curious in terms of it might make does it make sense for some industry to definitely have their workers vaccinated versus versus, versus others, Dan? Yeah, absolutely. And and we are seeing sort of these these uh, leaders 
um, sort of take the first step on it. We're seeing it in healthcare providers. Not surprisingly, they, a lot of them have experience dealing with the flu vaccine and flu vaccine hesitancy. So uh, certainly that's one group. Uh, nonprofits who deal with high-risk individuals have, you know, as you mentioned, community renewal team, uh, great outfit. We've, we've seen it in other nonprofits who have just said, look, we're, we're dealing with, with senior citizens. We don't want to take the um, the risk, um, and we're also seeing it in in some some other sectors like biotech, where people are going. Look, we develop vaccines, um, you know, and develop healthcare. If we can uh, get our employees to take the vaccines, what are we what are we really doing? Um, I, I think where we'll see in the future is when you have clients of in certain industries mandate that uh, employees be vaccinated. So for example, in the construction industry, you could see um, uh, the clients mandate that the workers who come on site be vaccinated. Um, and that may have a trickle down effect, right? And then the, the, those in the construction industry say, hey, you know, uh, if you wanna go out on this job, we need to be vaccinated. Then it comes from the clients and not necessarily from the employers uh, themselves. Do you anticipate that some employers, uh, while they may not mandate it for their current staff, if they hire new workers, this might be something that's part contingent on them being hired? Yeah, uh, I, we have heard that. And, and I think for, for some employers who don't want the confrontation with their current staff um, or who may have high turnover, uh, of of their staff, and rather than pick a fight with them right now, they're just mandating it uh, as a condition of employment. And employers can do that, right? You can just ask, "Have you been vaccinated or not?" And that question, in and of itself, isn't protected. Um, interestingly, in some um, Republican-led legislatures uh, across the country, we have started seeing some bills that are preventing employers from from uh, making it a condition of employment. Um, I, I don't think that's likely to happen on a federal level or on various uh, states, but uh, such as Connecticut. But you know, it's it's that theory is still out there. Again, you're hearing Daniel Schwartz, partner at Shipman and Goodwin LLP, as we talk about uh, what employers can require related to the COVID vaccine. If you're an employer or you're a worker that has questions about uh, what your boss can require, the number to join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I just wanted to circle back uh, when we talk about um the rules around what employers can ask employees to disclose. So HIPAA does not uh, relate to the, what we're talking about here. Yeah, I think that's one of those laws that people throw out and go, isn't there some HIPAA rule here? And um, it, it's one of those laws that has no application in this sort of employment context. Um, but there is the notion that people do feel like, hey, isn't my vaccination status private? in some ways. Um, and, and interestingly, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the federal agency which sort of governs uh, discrimination laws, they came out with guidance last December that said, asking an employee's vaccination status in and of itself is not protected. 
Um, it, it doesn't violate any um, HIPAA or privacy laws or any information about genetic information. And so that question in, in and of itself, have you been vaccinated, yes or no, is fine. If an employer starts to dig a little deeper in asking why haven't you been vaccinated, then they could start to learn information about someone's disability or medical condition. And that's where employers should tread a little carefully. But there's nothing wrong with an employer taking a survey of employees to, to figure out who's been vaccinated uh, or not. Because vaccinated status isn't a, you know, one of these quote unquote protected categories like race or gender, or age, things like that. Again, if you have a question for Daniel Shorts, the number is 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So let's talk a little bit more about accommodations because we know for the types of jobs where people could work from home, employers did shift. A lot of workers have been polls done. Like they don't really want to go back to the office five days a week, Dan. And so I'm wondering for people who are still hesitant and if employers are not going to mandate this COVID vaccine? Are we going to see more accommodations made to allow some workers to work from home? Yeah, that's that's really a great question. And I think, you know, pre-pandemic employers would, would often say being in the office is an essential part of the job. Uh, and courts agreed with them a lot of times and said, yeah, being in the office is is really essential for a, for a lot of jobs. We've shown during this pandemic that eh, it's not really essential uh, in every job. Certainly there's a preference for it. I think uh, certainly an acknowledgement that that it helps build culture at in some businesses. Um, it's easier to get work done in some businesses, but a blanket sort of like you have to be in in order for the job to be effective. Um, I think that that ship has sailed. Um, what it means for employers is, I think if for, if someone has a disability, that um, you know a reasonable accommodation for them may be to continue working from home uh, for a short term, not permanently, but you know something that you would evaluate. Uh, if an employee just has a generalized fear of getting sick and doesn't want to get the vaccine. I think that's the type of thing the law isn't necessarily going to protect. But even in those cases, I've, I've talked with, with employers, um, you know, they're, they're still willing to work with employees for the most part um, about it. It's been a, a challenge for everyone to try to get this right. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll see where we are um, by the end of the summer. I, I suspect uh, many employers are sort of circling around Labor Day as the date they're, they're really targeting to bring more people back into the office. But I don't think we're going back to uh, 100% of where we were pre-pandemic. Again, you've been hearing Daniel Schwartz. He's a partner at Shipman and Goodwin LLP. He practices employment law for both large and small companies, and he's the author of the Connecticut Employment Law Blog. Um, because we're out of time uh, almost, I just wanted to paraphrase a call coming in, wondering if there is a difference between full FDA approval and expedited approval uh, when it comes to requiring uh, the vaccine. Dan, what can you tell us in, in two minutes? Yeah, no, it's it, it's a good question. I, I, from an employer perspective and mandates, it doesn't really seem to have an impact. People think that because it's an EUA, somehow the 
uh, employers can't mandate that. And the, the EEOC hasn't prohibited it. I think it becomes moot in a few weeks anyways after the, the, the approvals come in. And uh, I think employers have just been reluctant to mandate it just for the appearance of, of the um, emergency use authorization. So um, stay tuned on that front. Well, Dan, it's always a pleasure to hear from you and our listeners can check out your great blog. Uh, we'll make sure we tweet it out at where we live. Dan, take care. Thanks so much. Thank you both. Bye-bye. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Tess Terrible was on the phones. And Kat Pastor is our technical producer. Tomorrow we're going to hear from Congressman John Larson. And we'll take your calls, too.